HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash meet. That's square.com slash go slash M-E-A-T. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Come and look. We will give you 100% transparency on everything we do. And you can come and stay on the farm and eat in our restaurant and shop in our store and leave here feeling really, really good about, about the way we, we do what we do. That was Will Harris telling me about the philosophy behind his sixth-generation family farm, White Oak Pastures. And yes, I took him up on that offer to visit. Transparency isn't something we often associate with farms, especially ones with their own abattoirs or slaughterhouses. But now, with the news of meat shortages, consumers are becoming more aware than ever before about where and how their food is produced. We're seeing the cracks in the consolidated system that dominates our meat and dairy supply. But on the other hand, small farms are discovering that they have some unique advantages amid the pandemic. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. Before we talk about the resilience of small farms, we're going to examine some of the obstacles that they face as they operate in a food and policy landscape that benefits big ag. Dylan Hoyer has our first story. As many groceries remain in short supply, consumers have been told repeatedly there are no cracks in the food supply chain. But confidence is wavering after 12 meat processing plants shut down in April due to coronavirus outbreaks. These plants account for 25% of our country's total pork processing capacity and 10% of our beef. The pending shortage has already caused prices to rise and led President Trump to invoke the Defense Production Act. The uh, president has invoked this particular act, which allows the government to order corporations to do what the government wants or needs. And he has not invoked the act to get corporations to make hand sanitizers or masks, but he has invoked the act 
to uh, insist that meat processing plants stay open. That's Marian Nessel, an author and professor emerita at New York University, whose work focuses on the intersection of food studies and public health. She points to one of the country's largest meat companies as the source of the campaign to keep processing plants open. She also argues that their longstanding business practices are the root cause of the meat shortages the industrial food system is currently facing. And this was something that was done under lobbying from John Tyson, who owns uh, Tyson's Foods, which is one of the big three meat packers in the United States. And Tyson has been arguing that meat is essential. It's essential to the human diet. It's essential to public health. And if meat isn't produced, the country is going to fall apart. The food chain is broken. The meat industry has to stay open, regardless of what happens to the workers. Of course, he says, the health of our workers is our highest priority. But that's obviously nonsense because of all of the reports coming out about workers being required to work when sick. Efforts to keep Tyson's plants fully operational and maintain a strong food supply chain are actually exacerbating the problem at hand. The USDA has um, given permission to the meat processing plants to be even more crowded and to have people work even more quickly. They've allowed the line speeds to increase Uh, enormously. So these are difficult, hard, dangerous jobs where people are crowded together. And if one person gets a contagious disease, everybody's going to get it. And And then there are stories about how the managers of these plants are telling people to work when sick. If they take time off, they lose their job. These demanding conditions may increase efficiency temporarily, but the lack of protection for workers has led to nearly 900 cases of coronavirus at one plant alone. Requiring processing plants to remain open is a solution that further feeds a vicious cycle, which began long before the COVID crisis. Let's just start with consolidation in the meat industry and the collaboration between the meat industry and the Department of Agriculture. Over the past few decades, a handful of companies have absorbed their competitors and centralized their business into larger and larger plants, which are increasingly few and far between. Today, just over 50 plants are responsible for 98% of all animal slaughtering and processing. They're concentrated. And animals have to be trucked or transported from wherever it is they're raised to wherever these facilities are. And small animal producers have complained for decades that they cannot get their animals slaughtered close to where they are uh, because the USDA isn't going to put an inspector into a processing plant that isn't processing a lot of animals. Um, So that's sort of the background for it. Fast forward to Sunday, April 26th, when Tyson took out a full-page ad in the New York Times and other newspapers to publish a letter conveying the urgency of their continued operation. Chairman of the board, John Tyson, points to the company's pivotal role in our food system at large, writing that without Tyson's plants, quote, farmers across the nation simply will not have anywhere to sell their livestock to be processed when they could have fed the nation. Marion can't argue with the truth of Tyson's claim, but she does counter its rationale. That's a, a statement about the way our food system works. If we had decentralized food processing plants, 
if we had decentralized slaughterhouses, um, maybe on a s smaller scale, but spread out throughout the country, we wouldn't have this problem. The reason that we have this problem is because the industry has insisted on this level of consolidation because it's more profitable for them. So in a sense, Tyson is complaining about something for which he's responsible. Increased demands on our food supply chain as a result of COVID-19 are revealing vulnerabilities in our food system that have been there all along. But for the first time, many consumers are being forced to notice. As people seek out alternatives to big brands, small farms are presented with an opportunity to demonstrate resilience, even as large actors try to limit their revival. For our next story, we take a look at one of these small farms that has developed a high level of trust with their consumers for many years, which is no small feat. Navigating grocery store meat departments was fraught long before this pandemic induced uncertainty. You have to do some serious Googling just to understand all the labels. Consumers are hopelessly confused about food. This is Will Harris, the owner-operator of White Oak Pastures, a sixth-generation farm in Bluffton, Georgia. The USDA labels are just fraudulently misguiding, disingenuous. Uh, the certifications, verifications, some of them are good, but some of them are just very low-hanging fruit, and consumers can't tell the difference. And the only weapon that a farm like us has against those things is authenticity. White Oak Pastures is unique because Will has spent a quarter century completely rethinking its farming practices. And in some ways, that just meant turning back the clock to a time before industrialized agriculture became the norm. I started in the mid-90s. Uh, I started moving away from the industrial model. And, uh, and it didn't intend to change, but just a little bit. But it just kept changing and changing. We're still changing. And in fact, the way that we farm today is way more similar to what my great-granddaddy and my granddaddy did than it is what my father and I did. Uh, by the time I started uh, making the changes, pretty much all the people that really remembered the old ways were not here anymore. We kind of had to figure it out ourselves. The changes that Will put into action had some unexpected benefits. That centralization, industrialization caused rural America to become uh, irrelevant. There's nobody needed it anymore. And uh, when we changed how we farm, uh, this town became relevant again. Uh, I moved from having three or four minimum wage employees 160-something employees that make twice the county average. And when we brought all those young, passionate, educated people in here, they needed a place to eat and sleep and drink and play. And, and the town is, is, is coming back. As our nation faces some unprecedented challenges, we have the opportunity to rethink the food system including the way that we raise, harvest, process, distribute, and consume meat. There are people like Will Harris and his team at White Oak Pastures who forged a path for others to follow. This is kind of the, the, the thing that initially made our farm different from so many others is that in 2007, 
I built that building straight ahead of us, and that's a red meat abattoir or slaughter plant. White Oak Pastures doesn't freight animals halfway across the country to a centralized processing plant. They raise, harvest, process, and package all on the same farm. It's a simple yet radical idea. You can actually see how this ethos of farming is helping the environment. I was with Will at the border of White Oak Pastures in the middle of a rainstorm, and watching the way that the water ran off the land next to his allowed me to understand regenerative agriculture and its effects in a new and unique way. The soil on this side of that fence is a half percent organic matter, and the soil on that side is over 5% organic matter. And there's no difference except a fence in 25 years of holistic, prescriptive, animal management grazing. What we're experiencing right now is going to wind up being a six-inch rain event, probably, by the time it's over. My land will absorb five of that six inches. My cousin's land will absorb one half inch, and the rest of it will run off. That's how all the topsoil gets washed away. And looking over back to what you said was your cousin's land, and then more over here on this side of the road, you can tell a big difference in color. Yeah. It's so green over here. Yeah. Can you and talk that, about why that is? Yeah, it's, uh, so I love the term teeming with life. That, 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 that's just a beautiful term. And this land, is teeming with life. And the the 5% organic matter is an indication of it. You know, this land has living roots in the soil 52 weeks a year. Like what's, what are some of the things growing? Clover? Yeah, I see, I see clover, vetch, rye, rye grass, uh, uh, I see oats, I see uh, brassicas, probably a turnip. Yeah, we, we, we don't like monocultures. We like uh, a lot of different species of plants, a lot of different species of microbes, a lot of different species of animals all living in symbiotic relationships with each other. If you want to hear more from Will Harris, you can listen to our full conversation about holistic land management, a unique partnership between sheep and solar panels, and much more on episode 361 of HRN On Tour. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3. HRN is supported by Escape Makers on-demand agritourism training. Learn how to grow your own agritourism business via 12 workshops that are on-demand and can be downloaded at any time. Whether you're a farmer, producer, winemaker, restaurateur, or destination marketing organization, for a limited time, Escape Maker is offering 200 all-access passes for only a dollar. You can access more than seven hours of education and name your own price. Take advantage of this special offer at escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. 
Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash meet. That's square.com slash go slash M-E-A-T. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. Welcome back to Meat and 3. Up next, Hannah Forden speaks with a small farmer in New Jersey who is finding a silver lining in the time of coronavirus. I've been lucky enough to spend the first few months of stay-at-home at a family home in rural central New Jersey. Although it's only an hour and change from both Manhattan and Philadelphia, Mercer County reminds you how the Garden State got its name. My neighbors are mostly farmers, like Tatiana Dale. My husband Evan and I have been working and living on his family's property that's been in the family for four generations. Three generations. At Goat Hill Farm, they raise poultry, pork, and goats. Nearby, they lease land where their cows graze. It's a small, organic farm, selling mostly to local restaurants and at a handful of farmers markets. Since the outbreak of COVID 19, many farmers, like Evan and Tatiana, have seen an increase in business. A lot of orders have been coming in. I mean, I've never fielded so many phone calls throughout the history that I've been with the farm. Our signs are in a lot of establishments in town, uh, Instagram posts, Facebook posts. And my sister always said that it takes eight times for people to see your face or to learn your name in, in meeting you eight times. So... Maybe it took people eight or a hundred times driving past the sign to think, oh, maybe I should call these, these young farmers. But we've definitely been receiving more phone calls from neighbors than ever before. A surge of new customers, especially people who might not typically shop at farmers markets or purchase directly from farms, has been especially striking. I would say that most of our customers prior to all of this were probably middle-aged, definitely families, um, a lot of young families as well. And I'm seeing a lot more than I saw before younger people in our generation. It's not only millennial buying habits that are changing. 
Older folks who are at higher risk of serious illness are also shopping at the farmer's market in droves. Uh, now, with everything going on, I think it's, it's a much safer environment for them to be outdoors. They feel protected. With hardly any government guidance, farmer's markets have taken it upon themselves to innovate safe ways to connect with hungry customers. And it's happening fast. From socially distant markets selling no-touch produce to virtual terminals, which are popping up all around the area. So you order online and you pick up in your car, trunk open, everything gets loaded up from multiple vendors, and then you go on your merry way. It's all prepaid. It takes a great deal of agility for small farmers to keep up with this increased demand for their products. Tatiana and her husband Evan are developing new, more efficient routines. I actually kind of like the way that COVID-19 has forced us to change our our pack our like packaging handling. It takes a lot more time, uh, but this is this is definitely pushing us to control our inventory and um, kind of be a little more proactive about what products we have and how we can get them to people, etc. This boost in business is impacting more than just their workflow. So in all honesty, this year has been extremely crazy for us. Um, we are actually in the process of buying a property. But with all of the sales that we've had, we've gotten closer to be able to be comfortable in the decision rather than pulling out of, of this. It's life-changing right now, you know, and we're, we're young. We're 29 and 30, and we want to be able to own a property that we can invest in. And uh, we keep thinking, like, should we be scared off from doing this because of everything that's going on? But we're just pushing forward, and we're going to see how it turns out. But Tatiana isn't sure if these changes that are bringing customers closer to their local food system will last. I want to be as optimistic about it as possible, and I hope that people can change. I think that it always takes a long time for things to catch on, and I want to see everyone influenced positively by this and stick to their new routine, but we I can't predict it. I have no idea. It, it can go either way. It can go right back to how it was, or we can see this, you know, constant uptake in, in people coming to market and in sales. But as far as I know, with all of my friends who are in the farming community, um, they barely even have vegetables right now, but they can't keep them. They can't harvest fast enough. So... Only time will tell. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) In a tight-knit community, it's difficult to dwell on success when so many are struggling and the future remains uncertain. It's bittersweet because there are so many people struggling and a lot of us have been in the labor force for years throughout our, you know, adulthood. And a lot of us worked in restaurants. So we can feel this struggle from the restaurants that we've worked with or are working with now. It's a 
ominous sort of time right now. So on one end, it's nice and bright and sunny and everyone in the farm community is feeling like they're being kind of encouraged to keep going because all our friends are telling us you got to get more chickens you got to get more pigs like this is a good time but what happens when it's over and you have all of this meat and nowhere to put it or all these veggies and nowhere to put it so I think that caution is definitely being taken at least from from the few farmers that I have spoken to recently for now All that these farmers can do is celebrate small victories while we all wait and see what's next. For our final story this week, we turn to the hardships facing dairy farmers. It's estimated that 3.7 million gallons of milk are being dumped every day. That's due to disruptions in the food supply chain related to COVID-19. McGill Webb has the story on how small and medium-sized dairy producers are adapting. The Gray Barn, a farm on Martha's Vineyard, grows a variety of produce and raises livestock. That includes 40 dairy cows, and more than 90% of their milk becomes cheese. I mean, we're selling a lot of cheese through our farm stand much more than we normally sell this time of year. That's Eric Glasgow, who owns the Gray Barn with his wife Molly. He explains what this crisis means to their farm. That cheese that would normally flow into wholesale and distribution has really come to a screeching halt for the most part. Um, We've had very, very little sales into those channels, which is problematic for us. And we've taken some steps to mitigate, but, you know, it's, it's certainly worrisome. Eric and Molly had to get creative to manage their risk and prevent wasting milk. They shifted away from making soft cheeses to ones that can age like cheddar. Which isn't a product that we've historically made and not something that I'm super excited about making because it's obviously, there's all sorts of issues with cash flow and cave storage and timing and everything, but at least it's something that we have a chance to sell later as opposed to making cheese that we almost certainly would have had to throw away if we were still making it now. You know, it does raise questions long term about like maybe we have to change our mix of products and maybe we need to focus on making dairy products that are a little more geared towards the the local community and not being so focused on, you know, making cheeses that are going to restaurants and, and nice cheese shops and gourmet shops and nicer grocery stores all over the country. Eric is not only adjusting to the current reality, but trying to anticipate challenges he may face down the line. He is particularly concerned about the summer season, given that farm tours and tastings would usually be a critical source of revenue. Over the years, we've built up a bigger and bigger part of the business where we where we do a lot of tours and tastings. And there's, uh, you know, a bicycle tour group that comes here like once a week all summer long and they stop and they have lunch. It's hard to imagine that on a Saturday night that we're going to get the 30 or 35 people that we typically get all summer to bring their own wine and stand around a common table and taste through our cheeses as a group, that seems like a reach. Larger dairy producers are facing supply chain challenges, but a difference in scale can make it much harder to pivot their business model. I spoke with Doug Demento, the Director of Corporate Communications at Agrimark Dairy Co-op, best known 
as the parent company of Cabot Cheese. The biggest challenge is running the operating plants. We have four plants and we have 900 employees and those plants are all in, in Vermont, Massachusetts, and New York. So those are the people who are really worried about, those are the frontline people who are you know, working the front lines right now is an essential food business. We're open every day. The farmers are, are working hard every day. Obviously, the cows don't shut off milk. They have to be milked and fed twice a day. And uh, you just can't turn that switch on and off. So we need to find a home for that milk. And the virus has, has really caused a lot of problems for us in that way in terms of finding a home for milk. We're making more products than we ever did as quickly as we can but at the same time with this the virus and the shutdown of restaurants and and food service we've lost 40 percent of our business you know the co-op itself 40 percent of our business has gone out the window two months into this pandemic they are still struggling to find a long-term solution that will avoid waste in spite of these ongoing challenges doug is determined to stay positive and focused that's what our marketing people are doing right now and our operations people. They're getting their heads together, working with the customers to see what the customers are thinking, to try to get a long-term plan for the co-op. You know, that's, that's what we're trying to do. It's not easy. It's, it's in a, a fluid state every week. Uh, there's something different, other challenges. But fortunately, like you said, we have all our employees out working. We have all the employees at work, and they're all healthy to date. We're doing testing of all of our plants. Uh, temperature testing and so forth to make sure everyone's healthy uh, because keeping our plants moving and keeping the supply line moving for the farmers is really key to us right now. We're owned and controlled by the 820 dairy farmers in New England and New York State and we're trying to do the best we can for those farmers to, to make this the best it can be given the situation. Over the past few years, many dairy farmers have unfortunately become familiar with financial insecurity as milk prices have dropped lower and lower. In 2020, things were starting to look up before the pandemic hit. Independent dairy farmers and cooperatives will have to continue to adjust to a new reality. Even when restaurants can reopen, they won't be operating at the same capacity for the near future. A shift in where and how people consume dairy is here to stay, at least for now. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks this week to McGill Webb. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hello, you can write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>